0: Some of the flights I've had, I mean, I've had a six, seven hundred yard slip on uh, on a Hungarian partridge um, where she took it and she took it up into the air and she must have been about sort of, I don't know, I would say probably about 50, 60 foot up in the air when she took it out of the air. And this is after six, seven hundred yards, you know, chase, you know, after putting this thing up. I mean, she is awesome, especially on partridge and feather.
1: Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on their awesome products, including their GPS system, head to marshallradio.com. And also by the Falconry Fund, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and protecting the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. For more information on the Falconry Fund and what they've got going on, or to donate, head to falconryfund.org. And I'm also happy to announce a new partner in promoting the art of falconry, being Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. After doing this podcast with Jose, he recommended that I get in touch with the folks at Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine and see if we couldn't collaborate on something since it seemed like both of our missions were pretty aligned in what we uh, hope to do for each of our respective publications. And so after reaching out to Neil at uh, Pursuit Falconry Magazine and having a conversation with him, we've agreed to work together on some joint ventures and kind of cross promote each other some in the future and so here we are if you haven't heard anything about the magazine yet or know much about them i highly recommend you head to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and subscribe i think you'll find the articles and artwork to be top notch and you'll really enjoy it and this episode features another guest from Across the Pond. Shortly after we recorded and published the episode with Simon Tires, Jose hit us up and decided that he would like to try to come on as a guest in the show. And after shooting some emails back and forth and kind of discussing logistics with him, I felt like I could probably make another remote deal happen, so apologies in advance for any uh, choppiness that might have happened. Overall, the recording quality ended up being pretty good, and I think the content is pretty good as well. So any kind of roughness in the recording, I think you'll forgive once you hear the conversation between Jose and I. And I think without any further ado, I will go ahead and turn things over to that conversation. So enjoy. Here we go. All right. Good deal. We're rolling. So Jose, nice to meet you. Um, thank you for giving me this forty-five minutes to an hour, however long you have here, uh, to discuss your uh, your history a little bit, and you know to talk a little bit about yourself. And whenever you um, you sent me the the information about you or, or hit us up via email about doing this, you talked about being a, a chef and and kind of uh, you know have some other interesting stuff going on with you. Is that is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm chef falconer. Um, I don't know. Basically, overall, basically, game chef is what I am. I I, I specialize in game. Um, but for and for and foremost, I've I've been a falconer for for many many years. I mean, I started basically in sort of my early twenties, um, and have been a falconer ever since. I, I even married a falconer. So there you go. That's uh, that's uh, <laughs> how much uh, how much falconry is in my blood
1: well it's uh you, you notice that the the marriages the falconry marriages that seem to last the longest are the ones where both of them are falconers yeah <laughs> yeah know, it's, uh, <laughs> the, the other ones the other ones um you know tend to uh how do i put this se- seem to suffer an undue amount of strain at times <laughs>
0: yep we have that here yeah. as well yep
1: <laughs> okay all right well i mean at least you're at least you're honest about it You know, it's I mean, my my wife's very patient with me and and a lot of my endeavors. And I think that if you don't have a very patient and understanding spouse, especially if you get into a, a, you know, a a sport or a side, you know, kind of lifestyle, I guess you could say like this, you're you're going to run into some issues.
0: (laughs) Well, I I suppose the thing is, is basically when you're both falconers, especially when you've got the amount of years experience that my my wife, I have. Um, you know, we we don't so much as have arguments, except that we have sort of intense discussions, you know, <laughs> about basically what what we're doing and what we should do and shouldn't do. And uh, my, my my wife's background is mainly on basically display birds, and uh, she she's worked all over the world, basically training and and flying display birds. Whereas my background has always been on basically hunting and breeding birds. So that we we sort of we overlap in the middle, if you like. <clears throat>
1: well, I mean. It sounds like you guys have a, a nice counterbalancing relationship in that regard then. Yeah. I mean it's it's always nice to to be in a relationship where you can uh do those kind of things together. You know, and I'm I'm sure you guys probably uh you know tend to probably squabble a, a little bit every once in a while over who to who's gonna fly their bird first, you know, which spot who's gonna get the sweet spot today and and all that kind of stuff too Yeah, it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that happens. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm lucky enough that basically I've got a full time job, and my wife, um, you know, she keeps my birds ticking over. Um, hunting wise, I mean, like she doesn't uh, this year. She's not got a hunting bird out. Um, and other years, if she's got a hunting bird out, she'll have one. Where normally I have two birds on the go, um, basically to to get them out. And so she she just keeps them ticking over basically throughout the week while I'm not here
1: okay so how many how many so you have two going right now you said or i have
0: yeah i've got a female goshawk, um and she's uh, uh three-quarters finish one-quarter butioides and uh, it's a russian goshawk. Mm-hmm. and uh she flies obviously you guys did in pounds and ounces so she flies at uh, uh two pound 12. um and then i have a uh a female peregrine homebred which i bred here um and uh she's a, she's a female peregrine and she flies at basically anything from sort of uh, two pound two to two pound three ounces
1: cool yeah i mean there's still lots of guys here that that use traditional grams and stuff too but right. um i try and i know there's a lot of guys <laughs> like myself that also kind of try to um you know do both just so we don't have to sit there and and uh look like idiots when we're trying to convert in our head like if we know like something's roughly uh you know, a thousand grams or whatever, then we, that's, you know, X amount of whatever. And you don't have to sit there and, and get your, yep. get your phone out each time and, and, and Google uh, grams to ounces or whatever. <laughs> and, and yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, no, that's uh, so what's your, what's your wife flying then?
0: Uh, well, we, we have, my, my wife has a Fulcrum display team. So basically she does um, displays, which are very popular here in the UK. Um, she does displays at shows. She does educational talks. Uh, she does basically sort of like TV work, a bit of everything. So we've got in excess of about 60 birds here. Um, and uh, there's a whole mixture of of everything. I mean, they go anything from our largest bird, which we have here, which we've got an African crowned eagle, um, through to basically we've also got a Chilean blue um, or a, 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 a buzzard eagle, as I think you guys might call them. Uh, we've got everything else from Harris hawks, peregrines, Saker falcons, um, a whole load of different types of owls, chanting goshawk. Um, so we've got we've got a fair fair mix of birds. We've got some of our breeding stock as well. So we breed uh, brookie-eyed Spanish peregrines, pure peregrines, um, Harris hawks, um, and then we also breed. We've got two pairs of uh, aplomado Falcons, which we breed as well. Uh, the the Peruvian ones, not the American ones, obviously. Wow! <clears throat> How big is your property? <laughs> uh, we, we've, we've got we've got about two acres of land. We we live out on the fens. Okay. So I know that, that you did a, a a podcast with Simon Tyers not uh-huh, long ago right. and Simon Simon lives not, not too far away from me it's a, it's a little it's a little way but uh, in your in America in the scheme of things right it's probably sort of like just a quick pop over to to Simon's from mine <laughs> um but I live out on in Cambridgeshire so the Cambridgeshire is very very flat you know it's uh, yeah god took a frying pan to the earth here and basically just flattened it all out for us um and it's um, mainly large expanses of agricultural land um with what we call a dykes through it. So both dikes are um, sort of like uh, uh, streams, if you like, of mm-hmm. water that basically go along the edge of the field, uh, which are yeah. used for irrigation. And uh, that's what sort of crisscrosses the land here. So we don't have any fences. Um, we don't have any uh, barbed wire or anything like that. It's just basically the dikes. And yeah. yeah, sometimes you've got to walk all the way up the dike to get across, to get back into the field that basically, you, you know, you're looking at your bird, but you've got all the way up and around to go and get to it. Uh, that's if you don't go to get wet going across the dike. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's ground that holds, uh, partridges, uh, pheasant, um, duck. We have quite a lot of ducks that go onto the dikes as well. Um, also some snipe, um, on the open ground as well. And, uh, there's a, there's a mixture of other birds as well. Sometimes we have things like golden plovers that basically go on here as well, which are, which are on our quarry list. So we can take those.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it <laughs> sounds, sounds like your scenario is a lot like, um, like when we try and, and, uh, like ditch, Ditch hawk, you know, ducks and stuff around here. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just annoyingly enough, just wide enough where you can't jump across safely. And, and, uh, so yeah, then, Next thing you know, you got to have somebody go around and just kind of hang out on the other side so they can hurry up and get to the bird for you. So you can you can take your leisurely 20 minute walk around to the other side. And, you know, <laughs> while you're while you're coming back over and and oh, yeah, yeah. it's just the other guys kind of babysitting for you. And
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you yeah. want to go across the street here, if you want to go across the dykes, uh, the dykes normally have about basically three or four foot of uh, sludge at the bottom of them um mm. which basically you sink into very very quickly and then can't yeah. get out the other side. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you next thing you know you got to get somebody to tow you out and winch you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. it's it's happened here a few times too. But yeah. uh well that's I mean so it sounds like you guys have a a pretty good variety of game there then. I mean the like when I was talking to Simon and when I've talked to some other people that are familiar with kind of the landscape over that way the biggest hurdle I keep hearing over and over again is everything's private and owned and you have to, you know, have permission or pay fees or whatever the case is. I mean, what, what's your, what's your setup over there? Then do you know people that you're able to fly regularly on their land or?
0: Yeah. So basically um, in all of my life, of my Hawking life that I've, uh, I used to live in Hertfordshire, which is not far from London and um, on the outskirts of Hertfordshire. And see the way it works here in the UK is that the ground, That Basically, you own the ground. So if you're a farmer and you own a thousand acres, then you own a thousand acres and you own everything on that thousand acres. Um, Unless you've come to an agreement with somebody and you've paid. Yeah, they've paid you for the for the uh, hunting rights to that ground. Uh, or the shooting rights to that ground if they paid you for the shooting rights then you can still allow people to basically fly birds on there because they've only got the shooting rights but obviously at, at other times of year or days when they're not shooting uh, if you've got the hunting rights then you've got it completely and that's what you do with it um but most of the farmers where i go are small farms where there's wild birds on the and the actual farms and the farmers basically like the idea of falconry they like the idea of the birds you know i i I think in all the years that I've been doing falconry, um, you know, I, I've never, ever been turned away from a farm where I've gone to actively look to see if I can fly my bird. Um, and uh, there, there is a quite a lot of wild game where we are. It's, it's, uh, it's very skittish, um, you know, the actual when you're flying. Um, there's not loads and loads of wild raptors here like they are in America. Um, we have sort of common buzzards every now and again. We have uh, red kites every now and again. Uh, we do have a pair of resident peregrines that basically live in a little bit further away in Peterborough uh, from where I am. It's about sort of 25, 30 miles away. Um, and every now and again, they will come in and mess up a flight. Um, but uh, but normally, you know, where we are, there's the actual the birds are living on very open ground. So there's very little cover for them. So they fly like rockets. Um, you know, I, I put down every year where I am here. Since I started living here, um, I love grey partridges. I think you call them huns, um, mm-hmm. Hungarian partridges, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's the it's the typical, basically, partridge of our of our countryside. You know, we basically the the partridge that should be here, as opposed to the red legged partridge, which was introduced. Um, and I, I love them, so I I have a pen in the back of my paddock, and my paddock sits in the middle of the field. So basically, I've got a very large paddock on the back and one corner of the paddock there is a pen there and uh, what I do is I put down anything but 100, 150 every year um, which I, I get them as basically seven to eight week old um, birds and they go into the pen and I feed them and everything in the pen and after they have been in there about three or four weeks we open the pens and we let them out <clears throat> and I've got feeders basically set out and they go out and they're wild they're running around and, and what happens when we bring the youngsters in they start to call and all the wild ones come in as well and they tend to sort of group up with them And so after about sort of uh, three or four weeks of them being open and going in and out, they tend to come back in for food. Uh, I then close the door and leave some of the partridges in and leave some out. Um, And then what happens is that you end up with basically the wild ones sort of sticking around, you know, in the area. Um, and, uh, And then basically, again, normally after Christmas, I'll open the door again and I'll allow them in and out again. And then basically once we get into sort of after Christmas, I'll close the door and I'll leave some in. So I'll leave about sort of 20 or 30 birds or sometimes even more in. And then what I do with those birds is I overwinter them. So basically I feed them and look after them all throughout the winter. And then at the end of the winter, when we come into the spring season and the partridges are starting to pair up, I then open them and just let them all out. Um, and that that increases the stock that I have here. Um, the birds will naturally breed um, in the area. So basically I, I've got partridges around me. Um, I've got permission from all of the farmers around me that I can fly my birds, um, and if anything, basically the farmers are quite happy because we act as a sort of a pest control, if you like, for the birds that are there. So mm. I can fly pretty much anything that's on these fields, I can shoot these fields if I want to as well. Um, because the farmers own the ground, it's not, it's not, synd- it's no syndicate on here, there's no one putting birds down apart from me. Um, and they're quite happy for that. I mean, this year. One of the the good seasons that we've had this year, this year has been a good year for, uh, for wildfowl. There's a lot of wildfowl about, um, sort of ducks and, and that. And there is also a lot of hares this year. Uh, we have a heck of a lot of brown hares this year. Um, you know, we've got uh, pretty much every time I go out for a walk, I'll put up three or four of them. Um, you know, I've got great flights at them. Uh, wildfowl is great, except for we've just been hit with bird flu again. So um, we've had the first sort of noggins of it. There's been, there was, uh, there's been two reported cases um, so far. And we're all sort of on tender hooks watching it. I don't think there's any falconers actively chasing you know, wildfowl at the moment or chasing basically any of the duck species. Um just be, just in case, you know, just in case basically we have any problems with it. We've had quite a few guys last year that had some problems with it where they uh they not so much that they were out chasing ducks, um, but they what they did is they basically uh were out in areas where basically there were ducks. And uh, what happened is that the basically the uh, they I think they're they were either the the guys that because we have guys that basically shoot pigeons here. So we have wood pigeons. Um, now a a few of you guys from basically America have been over here. I've got a friend of mine, Brad Mitchell, who who basically used to fly out there in America. And I've been over to his place and he when he came over, he was amazed by our wood pigeons, which are stocky big pigeons. I mean, uh, your doves that you have out there or imagine something that's basically sort of three times the size of those. I mean, they're quite big. And uh, we have a lot of pigeons and we, we're allowed to shoot pigeons all year round. That's not something that we actively hawk. Um, we tend to call it check um, because when we're trying to fly in a game hawk, if you've got one of these things that flies underneath it, the bird, it takes the bird off and it will take it for miles. Um, so we, we try to sort of keep them off of that. Now, those wood pigeons, um, some of the guys here, what they'll do is they'll shoot they'll use steel shot and they'll shoot them and then they sell them to falconers and falconers are using them as food. And what happened is a few of the guys basically where the guys have been out shooting, they shot a couple of ducks and mixed the ducks in with the pigeons, fed the pigeons and the ducks carried the virus. And then that spread it onto the pigeons. And then the actual falcons that were in the pens uh, when they were feeding them, then basically got bird flu. And those guys, because they actively fed that product to the duck, to the birds, um, they had their uh, their whole uh, sort of like their whole projects um you know, killed. You know, they had to come in. Defra came in and basically said, "That's it. They've all got to go." And because they had done it themselves, um, there was no uh, no compensation to them. If it was a, a case that the birds had not been fed, that and there was uh, duck, a bird flu would come in from something flying over the top or a duck landing on you know dead on top of the aviary, and they got bird flu. Then they they're liable for compensation from the government, but uh, because they've not that, and these have been guys that have had you know pairs of geofalcons and peregrines and all that sort of stuff that have had and lost. Um, here at home, obviously, with the amount of birds that we've got in my wife's business, um, as soon as we start hearing things about bird free around here, that's it. I'm I'm not allowed to fly anymore. Um, and last year, my my goshawk had sort of like probably about three months out flying, and, and that was it. Then I had to stop just because of the the risk. They can't take the risk here with the amount of birds that we have. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, that would be devastating if you guys lost, you know, yeah. sixty, sixty birds to to yeah. a virus. I mean, yeah, I understand. I mean, you can't if it's part of your livelihood, especially. I can yeah. totally understand being a, uh, you know, erring on the on the side of caution with that. Yeah. And yeah. man, I mean, I, I hate, <laughs> I hate uh, hearing stories like that. It just it it just wrenches my gut. I mean, I've, um, you know, and, and ducks also, you know, I mean for as many people that actively hunt ducks and then feed, you know, the duck to their bird afterward. And so it makes me, I mean, I wonder why there's not more instances of this sometimes. I think it's fortunate that there's not more because it's not just viruses that ducks especially can carry, but you know, they, um, they also harbor uh, specific strains of bacteria that can also be very fatal uh, to, to birds and stuff as well. I mean, I, I actually lost a prairie falcon a couple of years ago to that. <laughs> Uh, Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I fed her some duck and it was, um, uh, ended up having, I forgot what the actual strain was, but within, oh geez, I think it was five days or so afterwards, which was kind of weird in and of itself because normally, you know, (laughs) whenever they get that particular strain, it usually can kill them within a day or so, you know, that fast sometimes if it's not, if it's not caught. But my my falcon was completely asymptomatic. I mean, didn't wasn't acting sick or anything. I actually droned uh, droned him about 800 feet the day before. And he was just sitting hooded and sleeping just fine the night before. Woke up the next morning. He was laying there dead. And um, yeah, I sent him for the necropsy. And that's what they that's what they found. And and, um, you know, I, I wasn't aware of that before. So, I mean, it's, it's, as much as it sucks to have those things as learning experiences, you know, I, I'm it's you know also fortunate ways so you can kind of try and be you know looking out for stuff like that in the future as well but um but no the thing
0: thing about i mean i I, i've never heard of anything like that here i mean maybe Mm -hmm. it's something that's uh, endemic to, to parts of north america but i mean here um the main thing that basically carries on from birds to bird to bird is the uh the France that we get on basically your mm-hmm. pigeons, but I mean, obviously, you when you take pigeons and you freeze them, that kills the bacteria, and then basically that's not a problem, you can feed them. The thing about this, the bird flu, is that the bird flu, basically, even if you freeze them, it doesn't matter, yeah, it sort of just lies dormant. And when you feed mm-hmm. it to the birds, they get it. Um, yeah. and then the the, next, the last biggest thing that basically sort of killed lots of people's birds here was basically what they call peregrine virus. Um, and peregrine virus basically killed uh three of my peregrines. Um, I had um. Uh, two brookie eye females which I was flying, and uh, I had a um, a twice intermute female which basically she was up flying, great, doing phenomenally well. Took her up to Scotland, flying her in Scotland, and uh, the first day she knocked down a grouse into basically covers the first time I'd ever flown a grouse. Um, and on the lowlands down here, she was basically bouncing things off the ground, so she tried to do exactly the same thing in Scotland, and of course, first grouse she bounced straight into the heather. Um, and so I was thinking, well, you know, I'm up here for a week. She, she'll learn, you know, and uh, the second day when we took her out, she just wasn't flying as well. So that night when I was feeding her, she she threw up all her food. And uh, then after that, that was it. You know, she started to go downhill. We we came back down to to uh, uh, to England uh, from Scotland and basically took her straight to the vets. And basically the vets checked her out. They had her on drips, had her on everything. But all she did, she basically just lost weight, continuously lost, lost, lost weight and throwing up food. And there's nothing we could have done to save her. And then pretty much a week after she started with all the symptoms, her sister started with all the system symptoms. And her sister was a, was a brown bird still. And then lost both of them, which was a massive blow, you know, because obviously you've been training birds for that long and finding them. And these were two great falcons. Um, and, that, and that was it. And then I didn't hear anything about bird uh, peregrine virus and for another couple of years. And then I had a, a little tear brookie again. You know, he was basically into his first molt, blue feathers, took him out, um, Brookies here basically they they molt very quickly So the Brookies are normally molted by sort of here By the end of July, beginning of uh, August they're, they're done, you know And this bird had come out sort of towards the end of August And uh, again it, it started to show symptoms And uh, again rushed it to the vet And dead, there's nothing you can do about it dead that, That's the last time we had something that was, was that sort of fatal If you like, um, or that I've experienced it anyway down here and I lost three very, very good falcons to it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that sucks. Well and and the other frustrating part too is is with some of these bacterial strains and viruses, <laughs> your your bird doesn't even have to eat the you know, the the prey item or anything. They they can just come in contact with it, touch it, and can still get really sick and die from it. And it makes it just makes it that much more frustrating, especially whenever they're asymptomatic and aren't showing any signs of you know, really, you know, any major signs of um you know, being sick or anything that you can't even do anything about it. They're just, they're just dead the next morning. Yeah. That's,
0: that's, that's what, I mean, what you're describing there with your, yeah. your Falcon is, is mm-hmm. pretty much what happened with peregrine virus. I mean, you know, within, yeah. within a few days, the, the only reason my first female Falcon lasted so long was because she was as fit as a fiddle, you know, and she was like strong, big, you know, strong, muscular bird flying at a good heavy weight. And that's why she lasted basically sort about five days before she died. But I mean her sister died within two days. And the, the little soul again, that two days, boom, dead. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, um, you know, now that we've we've spent, you know, probably about 15 minutes talking about different ways our birds can die. I guess die. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this will be a good <laughs> this will be a good time to transition to um you know, just uh, Talk a little bit more about what, what got you into all this. What Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a, <clears throat> yeah. a particular thing that, that sparked their interest in falconry. So well, talk to I me, about that.
0: We, well, I, I've always been my, – my parentage uh, is basically both Spanish. Both my, my parents are Spanish. And uh, from the age of basically 11 um, up until I was put sort of about, I don't know, Seventeen, eighteen. Um, I, uh, my my mother decided that you know I should go to Spain and spend some time. Well, sorry, my father decided I should spend some time with his part of the family. His part of the family come from northern Spain, Galicia, which is basically above Portugal. And um, I sort of was sent off with my brother to go and spend the summer out there. And that, that place there was up in the middle of the mountains. I mean, it's uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, right up in the mountains um sort of uh loads of woodlands loads of uh, uh deciduous and coniferous basically trees so basically you've got you know alpines and then you've got real thick old oak trees you know in these forests and it's one of the pla- only places in spain that they still have basically bears and wolves um and i spent i used to spend all of my summers up there um out in the in the woodland. Uh, my. Uncles and uh, my cousins are up. They had a great sort of knowledge about the countryside. So I, I gained a great knowledge about the countryside, although they, they didn't shoot or hunt or anything like that. I just got a, grew a, a real sort of appeal for the outdoors. Um, at that time, I started at Chef's College um, here in the UK um, and I did uh, two years at college and uh, I, I had a, a fascination for wild food. And so I uh, every time that basically I picked up a book, I was looking at basically where different stuff comes from. I looked what people in different countries ate that was wild food and how they used it. Um, you know, as far as I could, you know, when you look at all the mainstream meats that we have, you know, a piece of beef is a piece of beef is a piece of beef. OK, it might come from different breeds and it might have a different, slightly different feed, but it's different. You know, it's pretty much the same. Whereas basically, if you look at something like a partridge or a pheasant or a, uh, a Hungarian partridge, you know, as you guys call them, or a grouse, you know, they're all different. They all eat different stuff. There are different um, ways in which basically those animals need to be looked at. And it's very challenging for a chef to cook them. So I grew an appreciation there. And then from the age of about 17, 18, till I was about 21, 22, my mother decided that I should go to her part of the family. Her part of the family was down in the south of Spain, um, and that's in Andalusia. Um, and I, my uncle's there, completely different kettle of fish. They fished and they shot. And so I went out with them a lot um and again i gained an appreciation of basically harvesting products basically to to the table roll on going to college Um and when i went to college um i basically did my two years at college um and loved it and came out of it did phenomenally well then went on to uh work at uh, in spain for little while and uh, i worked out there for about five or six months basically uh, working as a chef uh, in the costa del sol basically on lucia um, and then when I came back to the UK, I went to go and work at the House of Commons. Um, I was a chef at the House of Commons. And uh, the, one of the first guys that I worked with at the House of Commons was a falconer and a guy called Steve Farrar. And Steve basically flew goshawks, um, mainly goshawks. That's what he had. He had a pair of sacred falcons, which he which he bred. And falconry was sort of something that I'd um, I'd heard about. And I love birds of prey but i thought it was a uh, you know an ancient art that nobody did anymore you know every when i tried to find books in the library to do something to it because obviously back in those days we didn't have google um so if you if there's something new that you found out about you went to the library and tried to find out as much as you could about it and all the books were old books you know so i didn't think anybody did it anymore i thought it was yeah you know, this guy was a bit eccentric anyway cut long story short he uh I, he asked me if I wanted to go out one day with him. So, yep, jumped in the car, went over to his place, um, and out we went with a female goshawk, and I was hooked. You know, it was just incredible. I had never seen anything like it. Um, I was just completely in awe of this of this bird, you know, this this thing of perfection sitting on his fist. And uh, I, I fell in love with it. And so pretty much every weekend that I could get, that I could get out of work and go up to his place, I would do that. Um, this guy at the time um he had a uh, a female goshawk, a, che- a Czechoslovakian female goshawk, a very small one, um, which was through about £1 15 ounces that he had out on loan. And the guy he had it on out on loan to had given him a male red tail. Um and uh he 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 wasn't particularly enamoured with this male red tail because you know he was a complete goshawk man. And uh so he basically he said to me, Look, when you come out with me, if you want, you can fly this red tail. Yeah, you know, I'll show you the weight control and everything. It started to teach me a little bit about it. Got this red tail. Now the only problem was with this uh, red tail, it was an imprint, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, you can see where this is going. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So it was uh, it was the most cantankerous, nasty, horrible red tail, yeah, that you'd ever seen in your life. Yeah, and this was a male, not a female. Um, since then, I've had a lot of experience with red tails, with friends and, and ones that I've found myself. And uh, I've come to understand the uh, the psyche of a red tail, or the psychotic of a red tail, yeah? <laughs> uh, especially an imprint one. And uh, this thing, this thing taught me a few things. Yeah, where to and not put to put my hands was one main thing. Um, and it nailed me a few times. And it, but I I loved it. I absolutely loved this bird. And I was yeah, you know, even though it was cantankerous and and it, it didn't particularly want to do what I wanted it to do when it did fly. Well, it flew phenomenally well. And it was stunning to look at because this was an adult bird. It was absolutely stunning. Even next to the goshawk, it was stunning. Um, anyway, I, I, I flew with him for about two years and, um, got a girlfriend, you know, basically sort of started of look seriously at things. And, uh, and then, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend and, uh, Well, I I sort of went through a hard time after I broke up with my girlfriend, and this friend of mine, Steve. Basically, by then he was a very good friend. Uh, I remember one day, not long after basically the breakup, I was round at his place, and we were having a cup of tea, and it was basically out in the summer. We're sitting in his garden, and this Czechoslovakian female gosalp that he'd given to somebody else had come back to him, and the red tail had gone, and so he, this bird, I'd seen it a few times there. And he said, oh, pick it up and you know see how you get on with it. So I picked it up and it sat on the fist. And it was like, you know, towards the end of the summer. And this thing was lovely. It was fully molted, really, really nice bird. And um, we were sitting there having a drink. And while we were sitting there having a drink, he put the poe perch away and he put everything away. And we sat there for about an hour or two. And then he said to me, um, I said, oh, right. I said, I've, I've got to go. And my parents had gone away on holiday. I was still living at home then. And he said, I said to him, um, I said, where do you want me to, to put the goss? And he said, I don't want you to put it anywhere i said i want you to take it home and i um, i looked at him and sort of said to him, what do you mean you want me to take it home he said well he said you've had a few issues he said and you need something to get you out of that hole you're in he said "So take that bird home he said and fly it he said and that will help you and uh i thought about it i thought well my parents were away for two weeks so i might as well take this thing home so i took it home i didn't have the muse at home at the time um but my dad's car was in the garage, so basically that got chucked out onto the road, and basically <laughs> I put the bird in the garage. And uh, so for two weeks, my dad's pride and joy spent two weeks sitting out on the road while, while uh, where, where we lived. And uh, I had this bird in the garage, and uh, I I train. I mean, you know I started doing all the training process. Obviously, this bird had been flown before, but you know through Steve's tuition, I started doing some bits and pieces of it and training it and that sort of stuff. And yeah, I got it going. It was it was a great little bird. It was really good. I mean, you know. It's a parent-reared goshawk. Um, European goshawks, as, as you guys all know, out in America. Now you've all had you know a lot of time with them. And you know, back when I went to America, there's very few European goshawks were in America. And uh, I think that there was a we could never understand how you guys couldn't fly parent-reared goshawks out in America. You know, your your native goshawks. Whereas we fly parent reed birds here. We we could think it "It can't be that difficult. And we'd go out to America and the guys would go, no, no, it's impossible. You can't do it. you have to imprint them because otherwise, basically, they're just impossible to fly. And this thing was a parent reed bird, you know, and it was well manned. A lot of time had been spent on it. So I took it back to my friend's house and I said, look, going away um, for like about four or five days in, in a week's time. I'll have it back then. So he said, okay, so I took it back to him. My parents went away for four days and by the time they came back i built a muse in the garden um so when they got back the bird was already in the muse sitting there happy as larry and uh my my mother i remember my mother turning around to my father and sort of saying listen he needs it leave him yeah leave him with it so uh yeah i, I had this gossock started flying this gossock and taking it out and i flew it for about two years and um, loved it um you know, it was a great bird uh and you know here in the UK, I started completely the wrong way. You know, I, I shouldn't have got a goshawk right, you know, and I don't condone anybody getting a goshawk as one of your first birds. I mean, okay, I, I had the the experiences with the red tail and I had I, I sort of messed about a little bit with the Kestrel, but do not get a goshawk as a first bird unless you you have somebody that's with you that can teach you a few things about goshawks because I mean like they're 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 a bit of a nightmare. But I learned how I learned how to climb trees really well. I learned how to use telemetry really well. Um, and uh this thing was great, you know, it was, it was really good. It wasn't a particularly big bird, one pound fifteen ounces, you yeah, know. It, it was uh it weren't big big at all, but it, it caught a good good head of quarry. And then um I was gonna buy this bird off of Steve. You know, he he um he had a guy who wanted it for a breeding project, and I, I was gonna sort of buy it off of him he, he hadn't made his mind up what he was gonna do. And then um, towards the middle of one of the uh, the seasons, um, this goss chased a rabbit across a, an open ground, open field. And it crashed into a, a hawthorn bush. Now, hawthorns have got very, very long uh, spines. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> what it done, I didn't know then, but it, the spine had gone into the bird's foot and come out. But the tip of the spine had, had broken into its foot. So it ended up with secondary bubble foot um it's foot just the next day it's foot blew up like a balloon and i didn't know what happened to it and i couldn't find any holes anything they took it to the vet and uh by that time it got heat the neck because obviously it was a sunday couldn't take it to the vet on sunday so there was heat in the foot they started it on a course of antibiotics back then um the antibiotics that we had um took a long time to basically get the bird through the bird's you know system to be able to basically get especially into the feet that has very poor circulation so we um uh, they they said they would have to operate on it to you know take the uh where the the, the spine was and they did an operation they did uh, quite a few operations they did two operations on the bird um and yeah every time a bird went under anesthetic back then i mean we're talking sort of like sort of 25 years ago uh you held your breath because there was a good chance that the bird wouldn't come out of anesthetic and so it went twice under under and it twice it came out and it was great and By the time they basically finished with the foot and everything, bandaged it all up, the bird basically healed up really well. But the vet said to me, look, you don't want to be flying this bird at game anymore. You know, this bird wants to be retired to an aviary. If there's a chance, there could be something in the foot. If it has a knock, you know, there's a chance it could flare up. He said, you really want to give this bird some time. It was in the base of the foot. so. So Steve decided to basically to, you know, get it off uh, basically for breeding, you know, to to the guy that wanted it for breeding. So he gave it to the guy. He had it for breeding um, and she bred the following year. Um, But that left me without hawk for for the following season. And by that time, I was so hooked that I couldn't wait another year for this bird to breed. So I then started looking at basically, well, okay, what can I get? You know, and, and at that time, I just bought my first flat in London and uh I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I can't afford a gospel goshawk because goshawks back then were sort of like about two and a half thousand pounds of gossip. So <clears throat> I went for the next best thing, which had started to come down here in price, which were very, very expensive, but they started to come down, and that was Harris Hawk. Um, so I had a friend of mine who bred Harris Hawks and went to him and looked at some Harris Hawks he had. I didn't have a lot of experience with Harris Hawks, and at that time. There were a lot of conflicting arguments as to basically how to fly Harris Hawks here in the UK. A lot of people basically wanted to treat them exactly the same as goshawks, Um, and, you know, basically take them, cut them down, fly them. You know, that was it. That was the thing. You know, get them at sort of 11, 12 weeks. Yeah, well, now we know you don't do that with the Harris hawk. You, you know, Harris Hawks you, you, here now the ones that I breed and sell. I mean, I won't let anybody have, I let experienced falconers can have them at 14 to 15 weeks, but anybody else has them at 16 weeks. Um, and so, yeah, we learned this over the years with them. So I I had this bird at basically 15 weeks, went and bought it. Uh, I think I paid £900 for it uh, at the time. Uh, Harris was now at about £350. Um, so that's just how much basically Harris was to come down. Um, and I got Ellie. Ellie was basically, she was, I would say, my first proper self-owned hunting bird that I'd properly owned and uh, i flew that bird for near on 12 years um she was awesome uh in the 12 years that i had her uh, she took over 750 head again you know she took everything from she was a two pound bird she took everything from the largest hair she caught was eight and a half pounds and she caught a gray lag goose that weighed ten and a half pounds she taught rabbits. She caught partridges off a off, off a stoop, basically waiting on above you and then stooping down as the partridges lifting, taking them. She caught seagulls. She got you know incredible bird. And I learned a lot about flying Harris Hawks from her. Um, I learned a lot over the coming years of basically flying Harris Hawks. Um, at that time, there was a big divide between goshawk flyers and Harris Hawk flyers. Well, I was in the position where I'd already flown goshawks, and I put a lot of the knowledge of flying a goshawk into flying a harrisawk without the cutting them to the bone sort of syndrome, you know, understanding about the bird and and trying to think a little bit more about the bird in the wild and what it would do in the wild, how it hunted, you know, right down to the points of basically when a bird should be picked up and why you pick it up at that age. You know, the the bird needs to gain its only dependence away from the family and then it also needs to understand that basically you're not a a food provider the same as the parent, that you're basically a, a partner in its hunting. So, over those years, I, I, I learned a lot about flying Harris Hawks. So, um, I, I then I joined a club called the British Hawking Association. And the British Hawking Association was basically then, back then, the third largest club in the UK. And uh, the BHA, we, we had a region in Hertfordshire. I became the regional officer in Hertfordshire uh, with a friend of mine, a guy called Paul Harris. We ran it together. We had about 85 members in our in our region, in Hertfordshire. And the other regions was dotted around the UK. Uh, and we had affiliated clubs in other countries like Spain, Um and then we um, you know, from from that, um, not long afterwards, I became a chairman of the BHA. I was chairman for five years of uh, the BHA basically, still while flying LE and and uh and at the same time I also went out to Spain and I, I met one of your fellow countrymen, Tom Cade. Um I, I was out there in Spain when Tom Cade was receiving a prize from the uh the Spanish Falconry Association, yeah, for his work uh to Falconry. And Tom had gone out there to do a talk on um Uh, on geofalcons Falcons and uh, the Peregrine Fund. And uh, I met him and his wife. Um, I went out there with another sort of well-known breeder here in the UK, a guy called Derek Stotton. And Derek was out there to basically do uh, a talk on um, uh, breeding goshawks uh, in captivity. And I went out there because the guys in Spain, I I speak Spanish, I'm I'm fluent in Spanish, and by that time I had a lot of contact with Spanish falconers. And the guys up there came over to the UK, saw me fly my Harris Hawk, and Harris Hawks was a new thing to Spain. And they were doing what the were making all the mistakes that we'd made, and you know, cut them to the bone. He had these screaming imprint things that basically were thinking, you know, Oh my god. And the guy sort of said to me, Will you come over and do a talk on on flying and hunting harrisorts, You know, what you've done with them. So I went out there, and um, much to my embarrassment when I met Tom Cade, you know, and Tom, I was in awe of this guy, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about him, about the Peregrine Fund. I, I was a member of NAFA for many, many years, and I'd read about him. Yeah, and I I was absolutely in awe of meeting this guy, such a lovely gentleman, um, him and his wife, and I I remember the first night sitting there, um, where we were at dinner, and I said, and the next night was my talk, and I said to Tom, I said, I'm really embarrassed, I said, to be basically doing a talk on Harris Hawks, with you there, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I said like, talk about teaching somebody to suck eggs you know it's like you know it's uh i i, I don't i really you know and he said and he's turned around and he said to me jose he said i know nothing about harris hawks he said you know I've, I've spent my life with vulcans i saw absolutely nothing about harris hawks and so the next day we we went to this talk and it was a, a massive auditorium of people and a lot of people had come to listen because there were very, very few people flying Harris Hawks and lots of people flying goshawks. and all the goshawk guys were sitting at the back sort of whispering to each other, saying, hey, you know, laughing at these crows that everybody was flying, right? They weren't any good. And so then I started, um, back then they have obviously the slide show and there was slides, that were showing slides and uh, I had pictures of this bird, miraculous bird that I had and other birds that I had in my club <clears throat> taking a whole myriad of different types of game, explaining to them about at what age they should take them about training techniques about you know how they should basically bring their birds on um about using hawks what we call a makehawk i don't know if you have that do you have that in america
1: uh so you, mean, makehawk- you talk about an established bird uh, yeah bird, so when bird, you have an abbey. yeah mm-hmm. yeah an adult
0: female flying with with young males and, and females they teach mm-hmm. each other to hunt and basically that obviously the the adult female will tend to basically respect the younger birds coming in on her kills without fighting you know or arguing together also about socializing birds you know socializing i mean we have a thing here when we breed our Harris Hawks and we have an aviary which is separate a large aviary and charlotte uh, my wife her um display birds that she flies she has a team of uh i think it's five five or six i think now um and she'll have like two or three of them in them in the aviary letting them molt giving them some time off while the others are working and she'll swap them over at different times of the year so there's always two or three birds in the aviary <clears throat> and then what we've done over the years is what we do is we when we breed our Harris Hawks. They're in seclusion aviaries. And then once they're roundabouts sort of 12 to 13 weeks old, we take them from the seclusion aviary and we put them into the other seclusion aviary with the adult birds that they don't know. So what happens is they become socialised and also they become independent because those adult birds aren't going to feed them. They've got to go and get their own food. <clears throat> and we find that it makes for really great, well socialised birds that accept other birds, you know, and that sort of stuff. So. You know, all this sort of stuff I was explaining. And uh, <clears throat> after the, uh, you know, all the gossip guys are basically whispering to each other when they're seeing the pictures, of these great big hares that they're catching and, you know, the other birds that all these are catching and sort of like, you know. And um, at the end of it, um, Tom came over to me and he, he was very generous with the fact that basically saying that he learned a lot that night about Harris Hawks things that he didn't know. How much of that was tongue-in-cheek and that I will never know. But such a lovely, lovely, lovely man, you know, while, while I spent her time out there. So... Yeah and then when I came back <clears throat> um I spent quite a few years up in Scotland with uh, with Ellie um Flying Rabbits um <clears throat> and in Scotland it was incredible because there was a lot of rabbits in Scotland in the area where we used to go to and uh there was two of us used to go out there and I, I was so mad at that time and young and uh unattached that um I would do something like you know on on Friday afternoon I finished work we'd jump in the car drive overnight straight up to Scotland which is probably about 11 and a half hours from here And then get to Scotland, fly all day Saturday, Sunday night, Saturday night, we'd probably go out shooting. um, And we'd basically go have something to eat all day Sunday and then drive all the way back to London. Yeah. Ready for work on, on Monday morning. You know, we do mad things like that. And uh, up in Scotland, it was incredible the amount of flights that we have. I mean, I I think I, I, in one day I took 11 rabbits, I think one day with with Lelly, you know, she was just an awesome bird. And then one day uh, up in Scotland, she, We were up the side of a hill and uh, she came off my fist chasing a rabbit down the hill and she hit the rabbit and rolled over about four or five times. When I got to her, she was a bit puffed. The rabbit was dead, but she was a bit puffed. And as she got up, she was a bit sort of woozy. So I picked her up and I sort of gave her a little bit of time off. And I said to the guys, I'm going to leave her for a while in the car. And I said, we'll we'll come back to her and basically make sure she's all right. Went back to the car, she was fine, got her out, gave her a couple of flights. Yeah, and she seemed to be okay. So we went out and she carried on. She just basically seemed to be fine. Anyway, the next following day, it rained for the next full day, so we didn't get to fly at all. And she sort of sat there, and she was with the other hawks. You know, Harris hawks when they sit there and it's cold, where they sort of sit, they look ill. You know, they put that head down, and and so <clears throat> I didn't think too much of it. Anyway, we came all the way back to to, to the UK to to England, and um, she uh, she was in the back of the car, and we came back on a Saturday night, and uh, when I reached my friend's house, it was I was going to stay at his house. we we both decided we have a double box in the back of my car. So we opened the boxes and both birds were sitting there one foot up and we said, we'll leave them in there for tonight. And tomorrow we were gonna go hawking. So we basically, we were all ready to go hawking. So we just leave them in the car. the next morning, got up, went down, uh, had breakfast, went in the car to basically go hawking, opened the boxes and she was dead on the floor. And uh, she'd uh, ruptured one of her air sacs and um, uh, she had an internal bleed. And because she sat there for two days, uh, we didn't see any signs of anything yeah because she just sat there yeah you know, if we'd flown her we would have seen there was something wrong um but we we didn't she ate well she's nothing nothing wrong with so ellie died and then um <clears throat> i got a um uh i didn't really want to fly anything else so i was really heartbroken that this bird had died yeah you know? uh, and in the years sort of mean that i had flown other birds i mean i i flew a couple of the european kestrels and, and i actually taught two of them to hunt really well um, to the point where one of them took a moorhen, which is basically sort of like, you know, about three times its size. And, it, and one, another one that caught a partridge. Um, <clears throat> but um, this bird was sort of a bit special, yeah. You know? And in the years, <clears throat> I remember every year sort of going taking her out the malt and thinking, to her, am I going to fly you again? You know, is it going to be as exciting? But this bird, you know, looks as they get older, they just get craftier and cleverer, you know, and they're great. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and I, I probably would have carried on flying her for many, many years to come. Um, but that season i had a friend of mine who had a male Harris hawk which he bred and he had very big Harris hawks. he had um <clears throat> the larger Harris hawks that you find right out in the deserts out in arizona so this was a big thing i mean i've male Harris hawk flew at one pound ten and so he uh said to me i'm going away for a, about a week or two he said "Will you carry on this bird's training and gave it to me and uh, a couple of weeks went past i trained this bird i flew it i was flying it and uh, he didn't ring me, so I kept trying to ring him, and he wouldn't answer the phone, and you know, and it was so about three, four weeks went past, and, I trying, and then finally I got hold of him, and um, he'd gone away for two weeks, come back, but wouldn't answer the phone because he wanted me to fly the harrisault, so basically he said to me, well, you've got it now, you got it, to find. you carry on flying it, and by that time, obviously, I got made with the birds. so I just carried on flying it, and that was Mac, and I flew Mac uh, probably for about five years before he went into a breeding project, um, <clears throat> and then after that, when I got another female harrisault, um by that time i was married Um so then basically I had commitment a new house basically moved uh and then uh decided you know basically goshawk is hard work you know this is easy to fly these and i had also the countryside to fly it um <clears throat> and i got kaylee a female Harris hawk, which i flew and again she wasn't particularly that big yeah great bird not as you know you always measure it by the really great ones that you have and uh, this bird uh although she was good uh and a great bird you know manning manning wise and everything was great she just wasn't the same as the first couple of birds that i'd had you know the first good two good hunting birds i'd had um <clears throat> and then she had a stroke Um, so she and, and she ended up with one foot not being able to use one leg properly and she used to just lean on one leg and um, and uh in the end she got a callus on the leg so we had to have a put down because she got a callus on the leg and and it was going to turn into bumblefoot on the leg there's nothing to do about it and then so at that time um a friend of ours basically um who we have who who used to buy food off of us a lot um because we we sell hawk food uh he came over one day and he said to my wife charlotte he said um i've got a male gossip which i've been flying for years and i i've got another friend of mine who had a male gossip they're brothers and um this male gossip that he had um he said, my friend uh, became very ill. He said, while well, I've been away because he'd been away in Ireland working. He took the gossip with him. And he said, my friend's become very ill. He said, and this bird has, uh, has pretty much sat there and done nothing. He said, his wife has just thrown food at it. He said, and I went to see it the other day and it's in a terrible state. You know, uh, all its tail feathers are broken. It's been kept on gravel. Um, he said, its feet basically have got, you know, some blisters on its feet um it's not a particularly good condition i want to get it away from he said because they're just looking for someone to take it because my friend's never going to fly a bird again so he charlotte said okay well we'll have a look at it he said well i know your husband's flown gossips before he said so basically it'd be great for him sorry he said, brought this bird over and the problem is is when you when you've got lots of birds here um in the uk we're quite scrutinized by you know by the authorities so basically when you've got lots of birds and um if you bring a bird in, it's not in particularly great condition. It's a great thing for people to point the finger at you to say that you did it. Yeah. You know, so he brought this bird over and I kid you not, this bird didn't have a tail. You know, its tail was smashed to pieces. It's, it's feet. It had calluses in its feet where it basically been baiting on the gravel. It's talons were, were rounded and you know, it was in a real sorry state, <clears throat> but I felt really sorry for it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a particularly big male Harris, uh goshawk I should say Frew it about sort of one pound seven, one pound eight. And, uh, but it uh there was something about it I liked it had one white feather on its on its side of its wing. we called it flash because it had this one white feather <laughs> and um it took a a good year for this bird to basically feed up and you know nurse it back to to what it was and I'll tell you what took it out and it became a really great partridge hawk flew brilliantly, absolutely brilliant, but by that time this bird was about sort of six or seven years old i mean it had the you know bright orange eyes you know they're really as they get older they're really orange and um, then i flew that for probably about another seven or eight years i mean it was a stonking little bird until it just lost the ability or didn't want to fly anymore as it got older and it just then died just natural causes it died and it it, unfortunately died just before i was about to there's a book i was writing a book called uh, feathers um which which you've seen i mean in feathers, basically, there was um. It's it, it's a it's a it's not a cookery book. It's a book about game, about the history and background and all of the information about game. But it's also about how to prepare it. It's history and also basically recipes. You know that you can go in. And I was writing this book, and I wanted to have this idea of putting a section in the book about falconry, because what I wanted to do was show the old ways in which game was harvested for the table, and using an old method of cookery, which is fire barbecues. You know something like that. So, <clears throat> I, I wanted an, an adult goshawk for this book. And um, so, when this bird died, when Flash died, it left me in a bit of a quandary, really, because I didn't have an, an adult goshawk. And I thought, well, if I take a, a young bird now, I've got a full year of flying it. I've got all of the nightmare of basically flying a, an IAS, you know, whereas what I need is an adult bird. So, on the grape, put a thing out on the grapevine, and a, <clears throat> a guy who, a good goshawk breeder, a guy called uh, Glenn Thompson, um, he had a friend who had a female gossawp that had just basically gone into its adult plumage. And uh, this bird, uh, this this guy got divorced and he'd moved to his new uh, girlfriend's house. And this bird was basically, he said the girlfriend had, had terriers. He said it's an accident waiting to happen. He said like no, this bird's basically not in the area where it should be. It's not in a muse, it's nothing. So he said to me, this guy would be looking to basically sell the bird. For me, as long as the, I'm not one for picking up secondhand birds, you know, I've I had this, I've had these two goshawks, which I've been really lucky with, you know, the first one, the checkers, of vacuum one and then Flash, you know, but um, I'm not really one for second. I've always trained my own birds from scratch. So I went to have a look at this bird and uh, she was a sweetheart. I fell in love with it straight away. Great looking bird, big, powerful, strong goshawk um but absolutely laid back as anything which is unusual for a parent reed gossel I don't like imprint gosssel so I, this was a parent reed bird so um I went and got her um and uh I bought her and she she appears in the book um she's in quite a few of the pictures of the book um and she her name's Sophia and uh Sophia is awesome I mean she is like I mean some of the flights I've had I mean I've had a six seven hundred yard slip on uh on a hungarian partridge um where she took it and she took it up into the air and she must have been about sort of i don't know i would say probably about 50 60 foot up in the air when she took it out of the air and this is after a six seven hundred yards you know chase you know after putting this thing up i mean she is awesome especially on partridges on feather uh, she was flying quite a bit on hair in her first year, but I mean, she tends to turn up her nose on hairs now. She she much 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 prefers basically feathered game. I mean, I had a uh, the early part of the season here. We um, before the bird food came in, I had a fantastic flight duck flight with her, as a duck came off a pond where she went up and pushed it up into the air and went underneath it and inverted upside down and took her it out of the air. I mean, she she's awesome for that sort of thing, and she's great and she flies well in real open countryside, which is unusual for a gossock, gossocks quite better in woodland. Um, then we're adapting with them. But um, yeah, she's 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 good as gold now. So she appears in the book. Um, she's one of the birds that's in the book. And then one of my peregrines is in the book as well. Um, and that, that's pretty much <clears throat> where we've got to, to today. Um, uh, apart from basically the, the female gossip that I'm flying at the moment, a uh, female Harris, uh, peregrine, sorry, I'm flying at the moment. And that female in itself. I mean, anybody, if, if you look at my Instagram account, there's a, a little bit about a female peregrine that's in there. And it's the female peregrine is called Wonky. And uh, she's called Wonky because she's the first peregrine that we ever bred here at home. And when she came out of the egg, um, we hatched them in the incubator and we put them back to the parents. And when she came out, she was—we uh, kept looking at this bird and thought there's something wrong with this bird. <clears throat> and we, we, we kept looking and we couldn't work out what was wrong with it. Anyway, it turned out it had a—it's got a twisted beak, so, so she's a bit like a crossbill, um, <clears throat> and it's the top mandible that's twisted to one side. Um, so that's why we named her Wonky because she's got a Wonky beak. Um, and this bird, this bird is, um, uh, in the aviary with her brothers. She, she, when we bred her, um, she had, uh, three other siblings and they all turned out to be females. So there was basically, uh, four females from one clutch. And, um, when she was in there with parents, she's fully parent reared. Um, when we took her out, <clears throat> I took them all out. There were, uh, they were all quite large peregrines Um there were out of the, uh, the ones that were in there, there were two of them that were sort of round about the two pound five mark. Yeah, so quite large. And there was one that was about two pound three. The two pound three one uh, ended up flying at about under two pounds, and uh, the other ones all ended up flying at around about the two pound two, two pound three mark. I mean, I've flown Wonky at two pound three and over, but Wonky is the most aggressive peregrine you've ever met in your life. I mean, she's like my goshawk has better manners than this peregrine. She's nasty, horrible. But she's lovely. She's great to fly. She's got a great character about her. And I suppose the wonky beat makes her even more of a character. <laughs> um, but she uh, she's the sort of thing when you go to pick her up, she flares her tail, puts her head down, opens her wings. And she's as if she's going to jump off and basically tear into you uh, and she'll jump up onto the onto the glove. And then she's, she's it's as if she's got Velcro on her feet <laughs> to get her off the glove. And she's not low in weight. She's not high. in weight, She does it anyway. You know, she's like that. Um, and she's very aggressive. And the only thing we can think of is that in the aviary, this bird, um, when the food was being put in, because she took a little bit longer to eat because of her bee, um, her, her sisters would basically eat their food and then they'd mob her for her food. So she's become very, very possessive of food yeah, you know, and and um, any food. Like if you had a puppy with, you know, you have, you've got lots of puppies and you, you're feeding them and they all get a little bit sort of like shirty with each other about food. Well, this is the same thing that's happened to her. So... I think that's one of the reasons why she flies at such a high weight, you know. She, she, because she is, you know, it doesn't matter what weight you fly her at. I mean, she's just like so aggressive. And when she hits stuff, it's uh, you know, it's, it's like a, a baseball bat hitting a, a ball, you know, it's just incredible how hard she hits things. Um, and also her turn of speed. I mean, uh, she now she's into her second year, uh, she's flying phenomenally well, um, but she. I've phoned her up on the drone, and we've had her up to eight, nine hundred foot on the drone. She flies phenomenally, puts some fantastic stoops in. I've had stoops of 135 mile an hour out of her, you know, taking partridges. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm not a height chaser, right? Especially here in our countryside. You know, where you guys out are out in America, you're so lucky that you've got such open ground. You know that that height. You know, if you put something up, it's got to fly miles to get to cover. Here, we've got smaller fields. So if you've got loads and loads of height, especially where I am, I mean, we even with Simon is he's got bigger fields than I am. Yeah. And he's his, his birds are, you know, they fly phenomenal heights. I mean, he won't he won't he won't flush until they've done eight hundred foot. But for me, eight hundred foot, by the time the bird would take come down here, it's gone. So I mean for me, I'm 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 happy with pitches of sort of four or five hundred foot. More than happy with that, yeah, than what I, I want to do in valkyrie. And uh, there, there was a time when I used to do this, and, and Andrew Ellis, the, the wildlife artist, right. Um, we've sat here at my house many, many a time with a bottle of wine, right, and we've talked about this. And both of us don't chase height anymore. We used to, not anymore. And um, we're happy with what the birds do. And, and Wonky at the moment is uh, she's going through this period of uh, I've taken her off the drone, um, uh, you know, the, the the safety blanket that is the drone. Yeah, to get her to get height when I'm flushing stuff underneath her. Because what I do is I put the drone up. And even if I put the drone up two fields away, <clears throat> then she'll gain height. No problem. She won't go to the drone. She just uses it as sort of like a measuring stick. And uh, she'll go up and she'll give me that five, six hundred foot. And then I'll flush wild game underneath her. And she'd put a phenomenal stooping. But if the drone don't go up, I'm getting sort of like 150 to 200 foot out of her. And at the moment, we're uh, we're doing a lot of wide flushing to basically that she can't catch to teach her that she needs to go higher. Yeah, so that uh, she'll basically hopefully get that in her thick head at the moment. She's not quite got that. But but this bird is so powerful that even from 150 foot, she'll come screaming across the sky at 91 miles an hour and knock the hell out of whatever you put up. You know, it doesn't matter how wild it is. It doesn't matter where you're putting it up out. She just seems to have this tact to do it. Yeah, you because know, she's so aggressive. She's just such an aggressive peregrine. So yeah, so that's uh, that's where we are at the moment with, with those sorts of birds. And like I said, we we still have a, an array of birds here that my wife you know flies for demo, which I I also fly for her. You know, so uh, we we uh, we've got we've got peregrines and eagles and everything else that we basically fly and keep sort of ticking over. So yeah,
1: yeah, you've got a lot of a lot of ex- different wealth of experiences there. That's a <laughs> uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's, I mean for <laughs> I mean, and and that sounds like it was within a. Um, you know relatively short amount of time too like not well, not too far spread out anyway well i
0: i i started flying when i started flying the first gossip i had i was probably in my very early 20s so basically about i don't know 1920 yeah when i basically that was the first sort of thing okay and now i'm 52 so basically yeah. that's uh so basically in that in that period of time we've uh yeah, I've had to calm down my falconry life. Yeah. Uh, obviously once you get <laughs> once you get married and uh, have kids and, and have responsibilities, you have yeah. to calm down your falconry life. But yeah. I'm lucky enough that I have a wife that will keep my birds ticking over. She fires the gospel during the week. Yeah, you know? she'll fire it sort of two or three times during the week and she'll fire the peregrine. She'll put the peregrine up for me, you know, and take it out, try to get a slip for it. Yeah. You know? And if she, if even if it doesn't get a slip, she'll basically just put it up and then call it into the lure for a stoop, you know, whatever um so uh you know i'm, I'm lucky with that otherwise I, I wouldn't be able to fly the birds i'm flying now yeah and where we live the only reason one of the reasons again why i went back to gossel is because where we live you can't fly harrisawks it's just too open you know harrisawks just hasn't got the speed for the the, the the birds that live out here when they get up i mean they get up like rockets and there's a thing we call here fen pheasants and fen pheasants live out on the fens of, of cambridgeshire which is where we live and fen pheasants tend to be slightly smaller but what they do is it, it, a, a you know, pheasant in woodland will tend to go vertical, you know, as it's getting out. Whereas fen pheasants here, they don't. They go horizontal as they're coming out. They don't, they don't look to lift. They just look to go, you know? And so they're, they're so much faster that with a Harris, you just can cut them now, I'm no way belittling in Harris, I mean, i find lots of them, love them to bits. Yeah, and in the, right, in the right woodland, the right areas, yeah, you can get some phenomenal flights out of Harris, and you'll get a lot more kills than you will with a with a gossip and without the problems
1: yeah, so um, it sounds like it was a little bit more spread out then <laughs> yeah no that's um that's a lot of a lot of cool experiences though it sounds like it sounds like you've got to meet some cool people during the time you've done that also yeah. and and uh so real quick i mean this is um this would probably be a good time to go ahead and and end kind of talking some about you know the the chef aspect and what inspired you to do the um uh you know kind of like what you're talking about earlier with uh yep. you know doing um you know making these uh like recipes and and yep. these different things you know kind of how <laughs> how it was uh how these birds were prepared you know a long time ago and and like kind I of, so about how old were you whenever you you started pursuing that then i mean were you had you so, already been a chef for a while or
0: yeah i mean i i've been a chef <clears throat> so basically what i did i worked at the house of commons for about 13 years i became a sous chef at the house of commons and then from the House of Commons, I also worked at the for any of you guys that know places here in London or England, uh the Intercontinental Park Lane in basically London. Um, I also worked at um the Ritz, the Savoy. Um, and I also worked at Mossumans, which is a quite a well-known sort of chef here in London. I worked at his place. And then from there, I, I went to work at where I work now, which is basically the it's the premier catering college in the UK. Uh it's Westminster Kingsway College. I mean, a lot of people out in America. Uh, the Culinary Institute of America and all those sorts of places—they know our, our our place. We're sort of like the equivalent of what you have out there, of the the great culinary you know colleges that you all universities they have out there. So Westminster is the—it's one of the oldest. Uh, it's where I was a student, so I've come full circle from being a student there all the way around now to being a lecturer there. And uh, so I, I, when I started working at the college, um, I game was a fascination because obviously, yeah, you know, I was hunting and catching this stuff. And I wanted to cook it, you know, being Spanish, I, that's the whole thing of cooking. Yeah, you know, the bird would have take its bit and then I would bring the whole thing home and want to cook it. And so the, over the years, I by accident, I gained a very thorough knowledge of game and its preparation that a lot of chefs didn't have. And a lot of chefs here were basically stuck very traditionally in basically the way that they cook. Now, I've got to, I've got to say that here in the UK, it's very different to America. So here in the UK, uh, game is sold. You can buy it. And you can go into a restaurant and you can eat wild game. So wild venison, wild rabbits, hares, partridge, pheasant, whatever you like. It's wild. Yeah, it's all wild. It's not farmed at all. It's wild. So that's the difference between us and America. I think in America it's illegal to basically sell game. You can process it for your own consumption, but you can't sell it. Uh, I think most of the states are. There's some states that you can. But um. so this appreciation of it um <clears throat> when i went to the college I, I started doing a few training things for for the college the students at the college uh i wear a college that's very forward thinking we do a lot of stuff that other people don't do and uh, we wanted to progress that and i met a food photographer a guy called steve lee <clears throat> and his son was going to come to be a chef at our college and i taught his son um and steve basically he's a very famous food photographer in the uk worked with a lot of very famous chefs here in the uk uh, he was actually the photographer for uh, Alaska Seafoods um, for many, many years. Yeah. And uh, a lot of you guys, if you've seen any pictures to do with Alaska Seafood out there, a lot of that would have been Steve's work. Um, and uh, so Steve <coughs> um, saw what I was doing and he sort of said, you know, have you ever fancied writing a book? You know, and I said, well, I wouldn't know how to do that. You know, I, I'd know how to write a book, but I wouldn't know how to put it together. So he said, well, let's let's work together and do it. And we became very, very firm friends. And so that basically started the first book that we wrote, which was Venice and the Game Larder. Um, And um, Venice and the Game Larder is actually available out in America. There's an American version of Venice and the Game Larder. Um, And it's, uh, it's, I think it's called Venison. Um, and it's uh, published by Sky Sky Horse. I think it is the publishings uh, in New York. Um, It's it's very different to the one we have here because the American version has got all of the American species. Um, and uh, the, the one in the UK is all the British, the European species, if you like, um, but it's got all the preparation, history, and it's, it's sort of, it's a storybook with recipes, and then we got some very famous chefs to basically come in as well, and that took eight years to write, Yeah, you know, eight years of going out and doing stuff, and then before we finished doing that book, uh, two years before we finished it, we started writing the second book, which has got the folklore element in it, um, and that was Feathers the Game Larder, and um, Feathers the Game Larder, uh, but there is an American version of that. That's basically sort of the British one. You, you can find it on, on Amazon. And it's um, that there is uh, all about game birds in the UK. And we have over 17 different species of birds in the UK that we can basically bring to the table. Um, and so it was an appreciation of basically what game was, it, each of the individual birds, its background, its uses, beautiful photography because we went out and did all of it ourselves. Um, and then trying to give a bit of a history and background behind it. And um, one of the first things we talk about is basically, you know, how falconry was used as one of the old ways. And and the falconry is sort of one of these things that, you know, really unites the whole world because basically there is such a uh, a history of falconry in all countries of the world. You know, everywhere you go, there is something to do with falconry. So there's some sort of falconry being practiced. There's a massive heritage of falconry um and uh so basically it was a, to talk about that talk a bit about the heritage and how birds were brought to, to the table and my my love of that my love of falconry obviously being a falconer up forward fully for, and up mostly i'm a falconer and uh to try to introduce that into the book so then what we did is we i said to steve right what we'll do is we'll go out on a field meet and uh, we called it that section of the books called the field meet and uh, as you look at that section you open that section into it um there's a picture of me with my goshawk on the floor and she's uh she's sitting on a rabbit you can't really quite see what she's sitting on we're sitting on a rabbit. there's all the leaves of autumn around me um and then as you turn the page then there's the field me and in that page there's basically some great friend falconers of mine with long wings with some uh, harris hawks in there a bit of everything to field me all of us out together flying there's a phenomenal picture of my female goshawk on a cock pheasant um, and it's all about basically that day, that day when we're all out and we're flying and we're catching stuff. And then as you turn over, then there's basically the you know when, when we've got together basically uh, after the field meet when we're we're there eating, sharing food, you know, uh, eating some of the day's catch if you like. Um, and the peregrines are out, you know, the barbecues going. The peregrines are on a on a long um, uh, um, oh god, what do you call them? A, a screen perch or a long screen perch there with us. Um, the, you know, the hawks are on the fist while we're eating, you know, all that sort of stuff, like heritage stuff. Uh, and then, and then, as you turn over, then you've got about I think it's about six recipes, all using fire, you know, barbecue flame to cook, you know, to cook that that old way of cooking with the old sport falconry, you know. And uh so, yeah, that, that's that's I mean that that's a great part of the book, which is very beautifully you know photographed. And there's another bit in the book which is called the shooting party which does exactly the same thing for the gun. And that explains in photographs, it explains the stories of basically, again, you know, the beginning of the day, the picking the pegs, the basically the shooting of the birds, people shooting everything. Then it, you open it up into two pages. And in those two pages is the gathering, which is a, after you've been on the shoot, everybody comes together to eat. And then there's a further two pages that open out from the middle. And you've got like a four page spread of a long table with all the food on the table and all the people in their shooting gear eating. Yeah. You know? And then as you turn it back over, then there's a picture of basically the sunset and P- and empty plates and people going home so again it's a way of telling the story of basically what happens on those days uh, and and fulcrum is very very close to my heart you know i i, I do a lot more flying of birds and basically out hunting with birds than i do shooting i, mean, I do a lot of stalking um oh, actually sorry i should call it deer hunting Um uh, for you guys stalking means another thing out in america but yeah we we do <laughs> we do deer stalking you guys do deer hunting um, but we do a lot of that. Um, I do a lot of that still. Uh, and uh, one of my things here, I've, I've become very well known as a, a game chef. Um, and my thing is to promote basically wild sustainable game and the eating of wild sustainable game. You know, what better than a product that's been produced by basically the countryside that's out around us and it's, it's it lived wild? It's most one of the most ethical things that we can possibly eat, you know. And it's uh, it's and you know, with falconry, as I say to people that don't understand, what you are doing is you are. A, a person that is basically allowed to be in a place at the right time to watch something that's happened for thousands of years but you're just in the right place at the right place in the right time right place to watch that happen and you're watching a bird that basically is spending its time with you that is chasing something it's yeah, you know, they're very equally balanced yeah and, and it could go one way or the other and you have this being that is absolutely feather perfect you know it's the most aerodynamically perfect animal you could ever see in your life you know i think an appreciation of that and description of that you know when you talk about it you know gets really you know, falcon is one of those things that grabs you by the throat or basically you sort of hmm, yeah you know and, it, and with most of us you know, are falconers you know it does grab us by the throat and we're 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 in it for the rest of our lives yeah
1: yeah i agree well i mean i i think that you um Kind of without me having to to prompt you at the end there, I think summarized everything pretty well, you know. And uh, I don't think I could end on a, a better note if I if I spurred it on myself there. <laughs> so um, why don't we go ahead and call it good with that then? And yeah. uh, is there any last thing that you any any of your other? Um, Stuff that you'd like to plug real quick or anything? What before? Well, we no. Get... I,
0: I mean, the books. The books are available. On like I said, there is a, an American version of, of like, I say, Venison and um, mm-hmm. Venison the Game Larder. Um, uh, the actual original books are, are available here in the UK. um I do do de- dedicated um books. I mean, if anybody from America wants, yeah, you know, dedicated books, basically signed and stuff, I can send them over. It's a little bit expensive on the postage, um but if anyone wants basically those sorts of things, if not look them up on Amazon and there are, yeah, they're, they're great books. They're very well, beautifully put together. The photography is phenomenal for those guys who basically have falconry, There's a big element of falconry in the, uh, um, in the, in the feathers one. And we're, we're, we're just about to, to finish the trilogy. We're about to basically start, well, we've just started the last one, which is called fur. And that will have a big falconry element as well, because fur uh, for us is wild boar, rabbit and hare. Um, and there will be a small um, venison element in there as well. But a lot of the hare, and the rabbit that we're going to be doing on there is going to be with falconry. There's going to be eagle Fulcrumry in there on hares, um, and also one basically on uh, rabbit with goshawks and Harris hawks and all that sort of stuff. So we're going to do quite a bit of that. But we've got uh, just over two years of basically to do that for that to finish. So yeah.
1: really, that's that's a lot of work. It's a good <clears throat> deal. I mean, that sounds like um, you know, it's some of the more um, I don't know what the right word would be engaging, original, uh, you know, type of type of recipe books and and things like that you could probably get i I can't think of a many that that would tell a story along with uh having cool pictures
0: and everything else it's it really isn't a recipe book i know it's a book with recipes in it yeah but it's a story yeah you read it as a story yeah. And uh, and for, there there are guys, you know, that have bought the book out in America and they've all loved it um because uh, they read it. I'll say to people, do this is not a recipe book. Do not just put it on the shelf, forget about it and look at it when you need a recipe. Mm. Read it and it will tell you a story about every animal and then basically tell you through all the preparation to even write to the, the summary up at the end. Yeah, where it explains everything about the loss of habitat if we didn't have these birds. Yeah. You know, so that's a way to read it. Awesome.
1: Well, after, uh, after we get off here, I will get your, um, information as far as like, if someone does want one personalized or, or something like how they can get a hold of you for that. And I'll put that in the, uh, in the uh, description for the episode and, and stuff whenever I publish it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's, I think we're good though. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, in the recording here in just a second. And, um, I, like I said, I appreciate your time and, um, I'll get that from you just go ahead and stay on here and, um, like I said, I appreciate the the time, and yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was very cool. I'm, I'm glad to have gotten a, a chance to meet you here, and um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to uh, you know do this again, maybe in person sometime. And uh, you know, you can make me just a whole slew of uh, <laughs> of food that I can sit there and gorge myself on in, in the in the process as well. And uh, you're very you're yeah. very
0: welcome, John. If ever you come to the UK, <laughs> thank you for having me on here. Uh, thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, no problem. All right, thank you again.